Hi, I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast, a podcast where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping the real estate industry and, as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Trisha Talbot, the host of the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast and the Managing Principal of Doc Properties. Trisha is one of the leading voices in the healthcare real estate investing industry, and on the podcast, we discuss the keys to building strong industry relationships, tricks to investing in the rising interest rate environment, and strategies for successfully performing a medical office 1031 exchange. Hey, Trisha, great to have you on the podcast today. Um, I wanted to start off and see if you could give a little brief introduction about your background and kind of your unique aptitude for medical office space. Sure. Well, my entire career has been in medical office um, and healthcare real estate. I started at a as an in-house leasing agent for a developer of medical office buildings. And then since then, I've gone into third-party brokerage and had a ton of landlord leasing uh, portfolio at one point and then got into investment sales and then uh, corporate representation. So I sort of have a 360-degree view of probably every facet of, of healthcare real estate. Very cool. So on that, you have a wide view of understanding the healthcare market. And I wanted to ask you one thing, because I think in particular, you do a great job of differentiating yourself in a pretty dense real estate crowd. How can a young broker uh, differentiate themselves in the real estate industry? Yeah, and that's becoming, I think, tougher um, because I, I think with the pandemic, at least all the senior brokers I know just started working from home and I don't know that they've gone back. <laughs> um, so so that makes it really tough for young brokers to learn because a lot of it is through osmosis. But, you know, the best thing would be to find a team that you can add value. Um, you know, I would say, you know, as a young broker, you're going to be doing a lot of market research. You're going to be doing a lot of um, the detail work. So as much as you can position yourself with, um, you know, business degree, uh, um, finance, accounting, you know, to be able to help in that arena, um, to just have really great organization skills, be able to support these brokers. So, you know, basically your goal as a young broker is to make the um, senior brokers as efficient as possible because they're the ones that are going out and, and getting the deals and the clients at this point, just because as a young broker, you don't have that network, uh, but you can help support them and make them more efficient. Um, and the more that you can make them more efficient, the more you're going to learn. And then, you know, you'll be able to progress and build your own network because the more you learn, the more access to the clients and that you're going to have, and then, you know, eventually develop your own client base. But being part of a team, I think it's really hard to start out in uh, brokerage and, and be on your own. It's just, um, I think the internet is both a connector and a challenge, you know, if you don't already have the network. So I think of the internet and, you know, Zoom and all of these um, social programs, they're great at connecting you once you sort of have some sort of established presence and track record. And it's really hard, you know, that you've developed offline 
that you you know just support yourself online but as a young broker you know i think it's hard um you know to start virtually and be successful i think that's so true um real estate is certainly all about relationships and um i think it's it's particularly hard if you're a young broker in, in, a, in a flat world, right? In the, in the real estate world of the internet uh, to develop some of those relationships. You've done a great job in your career of developing relationships in, in a wide array of uh, aspects of the medical office industry. Do you have any particular advice for keeping and maintaining strong relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think the relationships I built, um, you know, just quite honestly, I was a deal junkie for so many years. And <laughs> the more deals you do, the more people you connect with. Um, and then since then, you know, you start developing relationships with the people that I think operate the same way. You know, you value each other's um, personalities. Uh, and then from there, you just, you start to grow and develop more business together because there's no friction. And, you know, when you can sort of streamline um, how you operate, things just get done quicker, you kind of anticipate what your client needs, you help streamline them and organize them to help them make decisions quicker, because they they typically have stakeholders as well, you know, they typically have investors in their properties or business partners that they need to communicate deal points to or opportunities and the bet, you know, more succinct that you can make that for them, knowing what's important to them, the more you can get done together. Great, great advice. So uh, kind of moving uh, to your specialty, I think one of the things that a lot of uh, folks that are looking in at the industry or people who are kind of generalists in the industry don't understand is there are really um, unique and important aspects to each asset class. And I was wondering if you could touch on um, since you're one of the foremost medical office experts, what are the key differences between um, a medical office property and just a typical office property? Well, a medical office property, um, so in off, like general office, I mean, you typically have a general office setup. You have a receptionist, typically a bullpen and maybe exterior offices and a break room. And that's typically can get, I think 80% of the users have that same setup with a little bit of, you know, maybe differences. Maybe they have more than one conference room or different size conference rooms or, you know, different size break rooms, you know, that sort of thing. But for the most part, that's the setup of a general office user. And that can be applied for an attorney. It can be applied for an insurance company. It can be applied for um, a logistics company, you know, with a few tweaks. In medical office, you know, you can have five tenants and five completely different build outs. You can have a dermatologist, you can have an orthopedic, you can have a cardiologist, you can have a family practice and um, imaging or lab. They all have a different setup. And typically, and sometimes even within different companies, like they'll have different standard setups. So, you know, if you're working with a national firm, they typically say, okay, this is our footprint. How can you make this footprint work in your building? Otherwise, you know, each of these tenants requires a different build out. What's good with that is that, you know, I would say in general office, you know, you're sometimes in new buildings, you'll get the long-term leases, but typically I think, you know, three to five is, is kind of the max in, in medical office, you know, for having 
all of these highly specialized um, build outs that a landlord typically has to fund part of, they can turn get long-term leases. So standard leases, even in second generation buildings can be more towards the seven and 10 year um, timeframe, which gives a lot more stability in the asset class. So people in, in medical office, so it's not as, you know, right now I would say the top um, sexiest uh, <laughs> commercial real estate uh, Food groups, I think, are industrial for the last mile stuff that is going on. And then multifamily continues to, to be incredibly attractive. But, uh, you know, in industrial with the last mile stuff, um, you know, I think at some point that will saturate. Yeah. Because there's only so many warehouses you can have. <laughs> um, and then, you know, with multifamily, you know, those... So, I, you know, I don't know how to underwrite multifamily a little bit, but not too much, but. Um, not my specialty know, either, so. <laughs> right. I mean, you would think that it, you have to underwrite like these year, basically year leases, maybe sometimes six months, year leases, max, I think two years. I mean, I don't know that anyone leases something and says, yeah, I'm going to be here five years because I don't know that they know what their life is going to be like. So, um, so there's different people go, but. Again, I think that they do, you know, they, they're more, you know, they lease them up and then they sell them for the most part. I don't, and in medical office, the investors, I think are more long-term. So it's not, at, it doesn't get the super highs and lows that other asset classes do, but it's, it's really steady. So like right now, when we're, we're looking at a recession or turbulent economic um, climate, uh, healthcare is a great investment because an investor can say, okay, I'm going to purchase this now. I know for the next 10 years, I'm, I can think that I'm going to get this cash flow. So I find that particularly interesting as someone who works with a lot of uh, sometimes less uh, predictable asset classes. I was wondering if you could touch on kind of that predictability of the medical office investment. Absolutely. So, um, so healthcare properties, their, their mission purpose-built, you know, mission-driven, uh, mission-critical, purpose-driven, and you know, there's a reason for the tenants to be there. The tenants need to, one, be there in order to generate revenue for themselves, or if it's a hospital group, the hospital has them there for a strategic pur purpose to see patients in that market. And um, so there's a reason for them to be there. They have to be there. Just practicality, you know, you don't go and get procedures in your home. Um, and I think physicians, you know, it's more efficient for them to have patients come see them than try to go to all these different places to see to see their patients. So when a, an investor is looking at a healthcare property, they are looking at it for the long-term stability. So it's not going to have the, the maybe a, the super ups and downs of some of the other asset classes, but they can say, okay, you know, there's 10 years of lease term or the Walt might be eight and a half years. And I know that I'm going to keep this. I'm going to have five years of good cash, strong, um, predictable cash flow because, you know, the, the tenants are stable. They're financially strong. And, um, you know, after that, I'll probably renew a couple and then I can sell it. So that's their thought process when they're looking at a healthcare property and it's it's a property to add to their portfolio that is stable and predictable um and as we're going into i think i've said this before but you know as we're going into this 
this uncertain economic climate, having healthcare properties in your portfolio guarantees a return on, you know, a pretty predictable recession resilient return. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've certainly seen that within our own portfolio. Uh, some of our hospital and, and medical assets have been very resilient uh, through COVID-19. Have you seen uh, that as well um, in some of the investment properties that you've worked with? Absolutely. Um, so the landlords in the space, you know, they report that they receive, you know, over like mid 90% of their their leases. You know, a lot of the tenants qualified for the PPP loan. A lot of landlords initially put together this whole PPP help program, you know, information links and everything for their tenants to go and get access to. So, you know, a lot of them, even though they might have been closed for a few months, depending on the state that you were in, you know, they returned to, you know, pretty healthy and quickly um, throughout the pandemic because, you know, people still needed to get healthcare. If you have cancer, you still have to get chemotherapy. If you, um, you know, have a chronic condition and if you, you just, you know, want to stay up on your healthcare and not, you know, forego seeing a physician for a long period of time, you know, you want to keep up. I mean, pediatricians, they still have to see, you know, babies throughout, you know, as they grow and babies grow pretty fast in the first two years of their life. So, you know, and a parent isn't going to not see their pediatrician because of a pandemic. Yeah, um, that's very true. Um, and, and in terms of growth, uh, one of the things that investors are looking for is they're looking for growth. The medical asset class is certainly one. Um, when when you're looking at long term, what are the factors that are going to be driving um, a typical good deal for your investors? What what are the most important factors that you're looking for? Well, I think population growth. Um, you know, where there's people, there is a need for healthcare. <laughs> there's a lot of um, you know interest in what's called the Sun Belt. The, the smile states, which is the Sun Belt, but yeah. you know, there's I see a ton of transactions everywhere. So I think it depends um, on where you're at, and you know, if the if the if you're if you're in a city that's growing, but even you know, rural communities need healthcare as well. So it it really is wherever people are, and there is not a lot of product. So you know, here in uh, Arizona, we. We have a lot of sprawl. So, you know, there's the city center, of course, but then there's the suburbs and some of the suburbs start there, you know, these master plan communities of, you know, hundreds of homes get developed, but then there's no services for like 30 miles or, you know, it's a 30 minute drive, um, not 30 miles, but 30 minute drive to get to any services. I mean, grocery stores or, you know, the like for a little while. So, of course, it starts, you know a dentist will probably open up or family practice will open up. And then there needs to be um, a clinic, a multidisciplinary clinic that typically starts with, you know, one day a week, a cardiologist is there, a urologist, you know, um, an orthopedic, they'll, they'll sort of, you know, open up this and start seeing patients. And then they develop this patient base and it grows and, and they need to see more patients. And, you know, they might start out in like, you know, really like a, uh, a strip center, but then, you know, that's not necessarily the the best location. You know, when you start seeing sick patients, you know, just for the dignity of the patients, it's nice to be in a, in a medical center. So then, you know, that usually 
migrates into developing a small medical office building, then that gets filled and you have to build another one. So, you know, it's just wherever, wherever growth is happening and medical services are needed, um, the supply of properties that are practical to put a medical clinic in, where it's located towards the hospital, where it's located, you know, with its patients um, and, you know, ease of access where the patients can find it pretty easily. So, um, of course, there's a lot of different deal structures, but one of the things we really like to talk about on the podcast is what does a typically good deal look like for you? And uh, look, we can talk about all sorts of broad factors, but one of the things that I find particularly interesting with each asset class is the idea of finding a good development versus a redevelopment versus a value add. Uh, through you know leasing or uh, some other major factor, what is it that you're typically searching for in a good deal, or do you kind of work with all three of those major methods? Yeah, it, it depends. Um, so with value add, you know, there's some very very experienced and sophisticated landlords in the healthcare space, so they want to buy a building and it's either a, a second generation medical building that still has some really good bones, but for whatever reason, either you know, tenants have left. Um, sometimes that the hospital has been in a location for 10 years and they decided to go build their own building. It could be that the landlord previous to them didn't have a lot of um, healthcare real estate experience and they were trying to treat the healthcare tenants like uh, other tenants and the, you know, the healthcare tenants just got sick of it or they weren't keeping up with the property. So for whatever reason, it has low or struggling vacancy, maybe some capital improvements that need to be made, and they know what to do to go in there. They can underwrite it, and they know, um, you know, that they can turn it around in X number of months and sell it, or they want to keep it long term. So, you know, they want to go in and buy the property as a value add, and they want to have the economic benefit of turning it around. Um, that also happens, you know, for owner users of, of if you're an owner user, you know, you may want to get a building that has some tenants in it for some some rental revenue, but you know that you need a space for your practice and, but you don't want to go and, um, you know, buy something top of the market because you want the economic benefit as, you know, the healthcare company that's going to be put, be occupying most of the space. So there's that aspect. There's the people that only want to at, they don't want to lease up space. There's the investors that are looking just for cash flow. They want the, they want, you know, a healthcare company to, de to develop their own building, use their own cost of capital. Once they put a lease on it, they'll they'll buy it from them. You know, with the with the lease in place, and and so there's there's that scenario. Um, there's sale lease back. I mean, there's there's just a ton of um, different aspects, and it depends. You know, do you want to purchase it for the cash flow, or are you looking to you know purchase it for for the value? Just like any other asset class. So most of the folks that are on here aren't particularly uh, institutional investors that listen to the podcast. So is there a particular method that you find works best for an inexperienced investor versus an experienced one? Yes, um, but they don't usually like this because I do recommend that they, they JV. You know, I think that the, there's a lot of opportunities out there to JV. I think private capital is going to be uh, heavily active this year. And, you know, if you have private capital, 
and you don't, and you want to mitigate your risk, I would recommend that you partner either, you know, with, with somebody that has a ton of experience in this space or, um, you know, somehow get into a partnership of some sort where there's, you know, people bringing capital, people bringing knowledge, and, you know, maybe you're the glue that puts them together and you go after these opportunities. So, you know, I think private capital, they, you know, they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket, nor should they. And the best way to do that is to, is to, you know, develop, you know, these mutually beneficial partnerships where if you can find a good one, you just keep, you know, you can just replicate that deal after deal. So um, we've definitely talked about folks JVing and uh, kind of looking at unique uh, opportunities in the uh, private equity and in the private capital space. Uh, for somebody who might be interested in doing that in the medical office um, asset class, what's your best recommendation? Uh, because uh, I'm sure you have unique insight. Yeah. Um, so, so I think you need to to work with somebody that has. Let me see how to answer that. So unique insight. Um, I think my unique insight really isn't, you know, uh, healthcare real estate specific, but I think being easy to work with and flexible <laughs> um, would be, you know, would be, would be good, you know, coming to the table with, um, you know, obviously you're going to say, hey, these are some structures that have been successful in the past, but listening to people that have done structures that are unique to, you know, the specific asset class. So for example, there is one thing in, in, in medical office, I, I think as we go forward and it's always been there and it, it sort of waxes and wanes, but offering ownership to these physician groups, having a percentage, they don't, they're not voting members. They don't, um, you know, they don't get a, they don't, they aren't part of decision-making, but there's a percentage of ownership that they give for, you know, and you can say you have to sign a 10 year lease or a 12 year lease or, you know, and and for that, you know, you'll get a percentage of ownership. Maybe also having um, a piece of the ownership that they can buy in to be, um, you know, they can own more of it if they want to purchase those purchase shares. These those are some of the structures that I see being most successful. One, it keeps the stickiness of the tenant. You have then they tell their friends. I mean, the, the success of a medical office building really is a tenant mix that you know, they want to stay there because if they leave, it's going to be more difficult for their patients. So, you know, for example, if there's a family practice that has a lab and an imaging center that they use in the same building um, or an orthopedic group that's in there, you know, and they all, you know, have sort of a referral patient base where it's easy for the patient. You know, I think when you're getting into the mind of your user, you constantly say, you know, they care about their patients. They're concerned about their patients. So if you're concerned about their patients and you help them, then you're going to be a successful healthcare real estate investor. Um, but, you know, there's some knowledge that comes with that. And um, doctors, they are a little bit of, you know, a, a different breed. And the fact that some of them, you know, they're, it's an intelligent group, but they have, they don't, they have very little time. And so they want to know information, but they want to know it quickly. And sometimes you, you do have to let them 
think that they know more than you. And that's hard. You know, when you get a lot of egos in the room, sometimes they don't want to play well together. Well, doctors had big egos. And if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be very good at what they do because they wouldn't be confident. So, you know, you have to understand your, the, you know, your target market really well. And I would say be flexible and easy to work with, um, with that target market. But once you, I have seen over, you know, the 20 plus years I've been in this business is if you can develop a relationship with a, with a, a strong relationship, they stay, they continue with you. You know, if you buy another building and they need to open up another site or they, you know, share the information with your friends, if you get a good reputation with this client base, you know, they're, they're pretty loyal and they can usually continue to work with you one because they don't have the time to really start a, re- a new relationship if they don't have to. I mean, if they have to, they will, but typically if they can develop a good team, of people that they know, they're going to stay with them. Look, we've had great relationships over the years with uh, investors who are physicians, um, and I, I would, you know, reiterate that's very true. They do not typically have the time because they're working in very high intensity <laughs> practices, um, mm-hmm. and um, as long as you're delivering good returns, usually you're going to have a great relationship. Um, so on, um, kind of that note of equity and and you, you touched on equity and capital, we're coming into a unique period of time. We were in a a Goldilocks period beforehand with capital rates just being, you know, ridiculously low, um, (laughs) at least by standards of the last hundred years. Right. Um, and now that we're in kind of this more traditional period of equity, but still um, a much higher interest rate environment. Has that changed the dynamic for investors in the market, at least for you? So I think it depends on who you're talking to, because I remember buying my first house at eight and a half percent interest rate. So, you know, (laughs) I, um, (laughs) so historically we're still, historically low, but we're higher than what we used to be. So people are, you know, if you've only been in the market for 10 years, you're, you're getting hit like a brick right now because it's like, you know, the interest rates have doubled in 18 months. Right. And, um, and so, you know, you're having a hard time digesting this. Then there's the people that have been through a higher interest rate market before this. And, you have to adjust. Will you be able to buy as bigger as bigger buildings? Maybe not. Do you have to maybe take a smaller piece, maybe reduce returns a little bit, you know, for yourself? Um, you know, you just have, you know, you're going to have to think about it a little bit differently. Are you going to be able to go out? Are you going to have to raise more equity than debt? Probably. Um you know, so there's just different ways that you're going to have to put deals together in order to be able to achieve the same or even, you know, better returns. But, you know, people are going to have to dig in and and get creative and, you know, run some numbers. And it's, is it going to be as easy? No, absolutely not. Because, you know, you're going to have to come up with um, just, you know, you're going to have to come up with strategies that work in a, in a higher interest rate environment. So um, one of the things that we've seen in other asset classes has been uh, it's 
the high interest rate environment has affected build outs in particular, because folks are looking at how much capital am I deploying? And um, there's a, an increased hesitancy towards spending uh, big dollars on, on build outs. Uh, the medical industry and uh, medical office is particularly well known for having expensive build outs. Um, mm -hmm. can, you, can you discuss a little bit about how um, you typically perceive build outs for an investment and if there are some strategies to manage and mitigate costs? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the, well, so uh, medical office tenants, they, they do expect a landlord to contribute. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, let's say, I mean, I think now it's easy to say that a medical office, typical medical office build out would be like a hundred bucks a square foot. The specialty build outs, the, the tenants, while they obviously would love the landlord to, you know, pay for it, they, they are um, educated, they're experienced enough to know that you know, if they if their build out is 150 bucks a square foot because it's super expensive, you know, they'll get what they can from the landlord and they understand that they're going to have to fund the rest. And they, you know, they know in their head how much that it costs to open up a, a new site for, for themselves. Um, but let's say the typical typical average from a shell, you know, is on a, you know, a good day in my market. And it's probably going to be a little bit different in other markets, especially California, New York, that sort of thing. Um, but let's say, let's just use a hundred bucks a square foot for, for easy math. You know, they will expect the landlord to contribute 50 of that. And for that, the landlord can, can ask for 10 years flat. Yeah. I mean, just 10 years right off the door is, is the standard. Then they can start to, um, you know, maybe it's 11 or 12 years that they start, you know, if the tenant wants a little bit more, then you can start playing with the lease rate. You know, the lease rate is always, as you know, you know, you can't increase it too much because it'll just get, you know, it it won't be underwritten that way. And and it'll just so, you know, you can play with it a little bit, but you can't amortize everything. So we all know that game. You know, it is going to just be playing with the numbers. It's going to also be, I think, competitively bidding things, you know, that you'll have you'll have to competitively bid because it'll just be some contractors have had some forethought, I know, and, um, you know, stocked up on materials and some haven't, and, you know, some will be able to do it in a different time frame than others. So, um, again, <clears throat> it's going to take, you know, a lot of, I think, upfront legwork. Um, I would, you know, you have to interview contractors because some of them have been successful through the pandemic and some haven't, and you don't want to get stuck in the middle of a of a build out and not be able to finish or, you know, th that's just a mess. So, um, you know, but I think leases will probably go longer than 10 years, but I do think that you need to raise enough capital to be able to be competitive in tenant improvements to, in order to have a successful medical office building. Oh yeah. I mean, look, uh, uh, the, one of the most underrated, uh, things that I, I don't think enough brokers talk about is a well-capitalized landlord. And, um, and, and we're certainly entering an environment where that's becoming more important than ever. So, um, Absolutely. so kind of going towards the end of the interview, we're going to talk a little bit about exits. Uh, and, okay. and you've had a reputation actually as being uh, a particular specialist or a particular expert at exit strategies. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the 1031 exchange. Everybody doesn't like to pay taxes, right? Nobody likes to pay taxes. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. <laughs> no 
nobody wants to pay taxes, right? So um, uh, can you tell our viewers a little bit about what a 1031 exchange is and how it factors into medical office investing? Yes. Yeah, so if you're if you're selling a property, so I I do uh, I help a lot of physicians uh, maximize the value of their physician owned property. So when I they come to me and they want to sell, you know I help them understand you know that they need to put a long term lease in place and then they can sell to these investors that typically are ten thirty one buyers. Um, ten thirty one buyers they are you know, as you know, they're, they're looking for investment properties to, to buy after they sell in order to take advantage of the 1031 tax deferral um, opportunity. So you have to be a little bit cautious because if they've identified too many and, you know, put yours under contract, then, and then don't select yours. But I luckily haven't had that happen. Um, they are looking for quality tenants, they are looking, you know, the first thing they want to see is the lease and your financials. So I, you know, I've, I've struggled with some physicians um, not wanting to release their practice finan financials. You know, if they're a strong enough practice, they don't have to release their personals. It just depends on their, on, on the buyer and the practice. But I, you know, immediately now, you know, I, I don't even go to market without having practice financials. So, you know, they, they want to see those two things first. That is, they, these investors are buying the cash flow. They're just they're buying the cash flow. They they are underwriting it based on their opinion of the financial strength of the tenant. So, um, so that's on the buyer side. Now, if you're for for these um, physicians, you know, or investors, you know, whichever, you know, if they're selling this and they want to do a ten thirty one exchange, they can go into other investment properties. Um, some have wanted to, you know, start going into this short-term rental market. They, you know, sometimes they actually sell this and and buy another property or two to put their uh, to put their practice in. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going to buy another practice and then they're going to put that in. So that you know, there's there's a, a variety of ways that you can use it if you're selling a property and you don't want to take the tax hit on those proceeds. But it has to go into an investment property of some sort. But that's, you know, what I tell physicians um, and or an investor, you know, the maximum value of your property is when either the, you know, for an investor, when the wealth is the highest or for a physician-owned building, when you have, when you are the tenant in there and you put a long-term lease on it. So if you can maximize the value with those opportunities, you know, then you can take the proceeds and go and do other investment opportunities with them. Def definitely um, a, a great method for looking at potentially exiting and, and kind of deferring uh, tax, uh, but there are risks that come about, right? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so um, I was wondering if you could kind of touch. And you know, look, the, there's never free lunch, right? So, right. what are what are what are some of the risks and drawbacks that you've seen, or or at least you've you've seen uh, from other um, agents and brokers in the market when selling a medical office property? Um, what are the risks and drawbacks? Of, of at least the one exchange process, because I, I think, look, no one wants to pay taxes. Um, right. So obviously identifying a property. So if you're, if you're thinking of, of 
doing a 1031 and selling a property, I would have have in mind some properties that you're you're already looking at because, you know, but the timing is everything because the sales cycle might be longer than you expected. They might need an extra 30 days to close for whatever reason. There might need to be something fixed in due diligence, which extends the sales cycle. So, you know, you have to, I would say, have a variety of properties that are potential for you to be able to strike on once that timeline, you know, is known. So the 1031 exchange is a little bit time sensitive. So there's there's the reverse 1031 exchange, um, which, you know, I think is a great opportunity if you want to try to mitigate your risk. But again, it, you know, there's always risk in selling. So if you buy a property, you know, and do this, the reverse exchange, but your property doesn't sell in the time frame, you know, like, you know, there's always a risk. So, so that's just, if that's for somebody that that makes sense for, um, I would say, you know, put the property on the market, get a sense of the activity. If it looks like it's going to go fast, you know, have some properties that you can move on fast, but then, you know, have different buckets of properties, properties that you can move on immediately, properties that you can move on in a couple months. And then, properties that might take a little bit of time so that you have a little bit different variety of things that you can go into and, you know, try to mitigate that time. But the 1031, it's a time sensitive strategy for sure. And you, and you talk about it as a time sensitive strategy. What, what are kind of some of those time limits that folks are worried about? Because I think there are a lot of investors that we talk to that'll be like, Oh, I want a 1031. And then you're like, well, I just don't think it's going to be plausible within your time frame. So so what kind of is that time limit that that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean you have 45 days to identify, you know, the property. Um and then, you know, from there I think the the timing starts to change with with what you need, but it, the 45 day to identify new properties is is the, is the big one. So you have to, you know, have some properties that you can invest in in 45 days and and realistically close on um, you know, pretty soon thereafter. So, so that is the time, time frame. And it's when you're looking at investment properties and you're, you're working with positions, 45 days is not a lot, you know, to, no. to look for properties, <laughs> make, see if they're viable, you know, negotiate with, you know, either through another broker or direct with the owner, which they have lives of their own. So, you know, when you do a 1031, if, if that's something you're looking to do with the proceeds, I recommend that you start that as a parallel path with the sales process and be able to to time it appropriately. Yeah, yeah, um, great advice. Um, yeah. So now we're talking about timing and we're running out of time on the podcast. <laughs> we're gonna get to our real estate final four questions. And so we're gonna kind of start off with, I think, one of the most important questions that we ask, which is uh, 10 years from now, what do you think will have changed most about the medical office industry? And what are some of the trends that you're seeing that are big picture that some of our investors or some of our uh, uh, agents or real estate professionals can kind of expect to see over the next decade? So what happens in healthcare and it has, you know, it, it you know, with HMOs that started and stuff like that. So right now there's a trend, a lot of um, private equity firms are buying medical practices or hospitals are buying medical practices and, and physicians are becoming employees. So if they're older physicians, it's, that is, has been 
a great solution for having to figure out the electronic medical systems and the, all of these new regulations with the Accountable Care Act. But then doctors start getting a little frustrated. You know, if they're younger, they either just have different ideas and speed of things that they want to do operationally. They have opinions about how things are being done that they don't like that, you know, you can't you can't fight with a big bureaucratic hospital. You can't make those changes. And so I see that, you know, while while they're getting bought now, I will see, you know, once they have their, so they typically have to stay an employee for a certain amount of time. And once that burns off, I see them breaking out into private practice again. So uh, I think that's, that's definitely where it's headed in, in a lot. We're seeing a real diversification of kind of who's deciding to come into private practice or, or even within a broader concept with entrepreneurial businesses. Real estate is an entrepreneurial uh, environment. And uh, I was wondering, uh, one of our questions we always ask folks is, if you could start your career over again, uh, what advice would you give young Trisha? I would have started a capital uh, raising real estate investment group um, immediately that, you know, starts in, you know, obviously it would be smaller buildings at, at first, but then, you know, build into bigger buildings and and then eventually a fund. Yeah. Hey, look, everyone loves equity, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, at, at least, at least when it's good. So, um, uh, I, I would, I would heavily recommend that to all of our listeners who, uh, have had successful careers, go out and start that fund. Um, I look, I work for a group that has a large fund. I I love operating in a world where uh, you have not only the ability to gain equity, but the ability to create long-term generational wealth. And for all of our folks who are potential investors, uh, do it. Just just take mm -hmm. that leap of faith because um, it's never too soon. Um, the uh, the third question we ask everybody uh, on the podcast is um, a business book or a real estate book that's influenced your career. We've had a lot of great ones over the years. I'm curious, what's yours? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But um, the one I think that has stuck with me the most is Simon Sinek's, um, you know, Ask the Why or it's oh, yeah. something with the Why. Yeah. Um, I think that's incredibly important because, you know, he talks about, we all talk about what we do. We all talk about how we do it, but, but we typically don't talk about why we do it. And so that's been something I've been working on. You know, why do I, why do I get up every day? Why, why am I so excited to come here? And, um, you know, my, I was having a conversation with my son at dinner yesterday and he was, he in high school was doing, um, sports medicine. And now when he's looking at colleges, he's thinking he wants to go into sports business. So I asked him why the change. And um, and then, you know, in his senior year, he could take like an advanced sports medicine. And he said, because I can't, he's like, I can't stand the blood. And if you can't stand the blood, my understanding is you can't really be successful in sports medicine. And I said, that's true. And I said, that's why I do what I do. Like, I know I do not have the capability to operate on someone. I do not. I mean, obviously, it was one of my kids, I, you know, but I would be more dangerous than anything else. But 
you know, I like even giving a shot to someone like to me, like the, 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 there, there's a whole fear and like anxiety that I get thinking about doing that, but I can, you know, do the business side of it and help these people who are gifted in doing that, gifted in healing, gifted in these really, you know, um, intricate procedures and they're, they're able to help people. I can help them. I can help these physicians help their patients in a, in the business side of everything, which they, you know, while some of them are well adverse in doing it, do they have the time to do it? And, you know, out of the 24 hours in the day that they have, and, you know, they need to go to work and create the most revenue possible. Is that on the business side or is that doing what they do in the, in the clinic side and then being able to go home and have, you know, happy lives with their families and, you know, have other things to do rather than work as a clinician doing all of this stuff and then going and having to do all the business side of it as well. Wow, Simon Sinek is a great, um, great influence on uh, the business world and a great voice for asking that why and so many other questions. Uh, we'd love to have him on the podcast. I'm not sure he's going <laughs> to. Um, but he's a great guest. He would. He would. I look. I'd love to have you on, Simon. Um, so, <laughs> who, who's the next person? Um, you know, besides Simon, that uh, has influenced you in the real estate world that we should have on the podcast. In the real estate world, um. So, I think. So one of my. Uh, people that I, I really admire in the, but it's, she's very local to my local market, but um, it, it's Sharon Harper from the Plaza and Companies. I mean, she um, is a female medical office developer. She created medical office in Phoenix and I think nationally as a, as an industry, she's just such an icon. Um, she is still married to the same man. She's raised five children. Um, yeah. I mean, it's Incredibly impressive because, um, you know, sometimes you're always having to say, am I going to work or do I need to get home to my family? And there's, you know, it, sometimes it's a struggle because you're just like, oh, if I just stay 10 more minutes. But then, you know, like you come racing in for dinner and nothing's done, actually. And then you're like, oh, you know, <laughs> <and everything." laughs> um, so, you know, there's always, you know, there's always that pull and to just have you know, and I'm sure she, she has stories among stories of, of how challenging that was, but I'm in sure. the end she did it, she did it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, as we're all adjusting to this new normal where you can do zoom interviews like this and we don't have to fly to each other <laughs> and, you know, for these physicians, you know, being able to accept the help and, you know, be able to go home and, and not think about it. I mean, I think we all have to think about how valuable our time is going for you, you know, as we, you know, progress through life and where we want to spend it. So I, I just think she, she, for me in real estate, specifically in my market has somebody that, um, that I, that I do admire and, and we talk often. So, um, and you know, she's a, she's a great person. Well, as somebody who's, who's looking, uh, down the, uh, the future of having, uh, additional little ones, um, in my life, um, I'll say this. I'd love to have her on the podcast just for that alone. Uh, but 
she sounds like a wonderful person to bring on and we'll have to get her contact information. So yeah. uh, beyond her contact information, if folks want to reach out to you and they want to learn more about medical office space, learn more about that 1031 process, or just reach out for someone who can give great insight into how to work in the real estate industry, how, what's the best place for folks to reach out to you? So the best way is if they want to go onto the website, which is www.docproperties.com, and then they can schedule um, a call with me there. That way, you know, it's in their time zone and there's not an exchange of 20 emails trying to figure out, you know, which time zone is what. Um, and if, you know, if, if a time doesn't work, emailing me, you know, at ttalbot at docproperties.com, um, I would you know, the phone number on there is is on the um, the website as well under contact. And so, you know, you can get to me that way as well. But I know that everyone's busy and a lot of people like to text and email and stuff like that. So I think that's the easiest way for everybody to get connected as quickly as possible. But you're always welcome to reach out via email or call directly. And, um, you know, I just find that after a couple of times of exchanging voicemails, people start to get pretty frustrated. So I just offer an an easy button if you want it. And then if, if you have a, your own method, feel free. I, I'm easy. I have all my contact information easy to reach. Trisha, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. And uh, look, we definitely have to have you on in the future and explain a little bit more about what's going on in the market. Thanks for hopping on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating or review. Your comments and interactions and subscriptions matter for the podcast algorithm, and they help us continue to get guests our viewers want to listen to and learn from. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Blinds Podcast. Thank you for listening.